I'm Christian Chiller. Welcome to my podcast, an enthusiastic ramble through whatever has taken my interest the past week or so. Expect technology, games, history, travel, geekery, and as always, much, much more. Welcome to another Chinchilla Squeaks. In this episode, a little bit after my links, I have an interview with David from the Babylon.js project, that cool JavaScript framework you've probably not heard of, but you really should have, which we'll dig into in a bit more after this roundup of links for this episode. Let's start with all the non-AI news first, because there's an awful lot of that at the moment. It's kind of hard to find much else tech news, to be honest with you, right now. But I have two others that are very appropriate for the times we're currently in. And uh, then um, we'll get to the to the AI news. So first, this is on the register from Thomas Claiborne. Um a few of the major, well, I say a few of the major browser makers, really, there's only um, two that I suppose care in this particular instance. This is Mozilla and Google, both looking for, well, both looking to a future they feel is coming when Apple will allow non-WebKit browsers on iOS. So have both started creating uh, prototypes of Chrome and Firefox that work um, on iOS, I suppose. Uh, I think they're getting this kind of feeling from these various changes that are happening, mostly because Apple is being forced to by regulation with things like third-party payment providers and the potential to have third-party uh, app stores and things like that. I, I'm not convinced that these will necessarily be the outcomes that uh, everyone hopes or thinks. Um, and especially with the, the browser, I, I don't know. I get the feeling that this is, these are all areas where Apple really, really kind of profits from, and they will keep doing <laughs> what they, what they are currently doing until they're dragged cricking and screaming to, to not. Um, but I'm guessing that these companies know better than me. So, <laughs> so I assume they have some inside knowledge that is meaning they, they think this, this effort, this programming effort is worth it. So we'll see. But it's it's interesting. I mean, it's obviously technically possible, I would imagine. Um, it wouldn't be too hard of a, a, a kind of switch from their, their Mac uh, versions, I guess. But they're just contractually and legally uh, not allowed to. I don't think you can um, try them right now. I'm not sure. Um, I, even if you could, I don't know how you could. You'd have to probably jailbreak devices and that sort of thing. But it's interesting to see that these companies are getting ready for this time. And maybe, maybe this will be a, a time to shine for, for Mozilla's Firefox. We'll see. Next, this is from The Insider, written by Ed Zitron, saying, tech CEOs screwed up. The summary of this, this article is pretty much that, well... All these layoffs that are happening in a lot of big tech companies, the 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 staff or the people getting laid off are suffering from when really a the CEOs should be suffering. And he details actually some um some cases. So Sindhu Puchai has made two hundred and eighty million in twenty nineteen. Uh, it doesn't that's actually a few years ago now, to be fair. We don't know what it is, I suppose, at this point. 
but has laid off 12,000 employees. Uh, and there's similar sorts of stories with Microsoft and Amazon. Actually, the one that bucks the trend is Apple, which is quite interesting. Um, let me find the... So Apple have cut Tim Cook's salary by 40% to $49 million, which sounds like a tremendous amount of money. Um, it's, it's significant. And Apple have had no layoffs. Uh, and actually, it's interesting because I would say Apple is more valuable than Microsoft and already he's earning less, which is interesting in itself. Intel have done something similar. The CEO there has taken a 25% pay cut and reduced the salaries of executive team by 15% to also avoid layoffs. So why does this not happen in other companies? Um, I mean, Microsoft is a company that is equally as old as Apple, maybe not Intel, but uh, you know, they've been here, done that before. Uh, and it shows, I, I sometimes wonder if in many of these cases that it's an excuse, uh, and you see this time and time and again, an excuse for these companies to get rid of staff they don't really need anyway, whereas Apple has always been notoriously run leanly. So they they don't have as many staff doing as many things as Microsoft and Amazon and Google, except well, Alphabet, sorry, et cetera, et cetera. So maybe these companies have cut from where they want to cut and where they have cut because actually they were kind of looking for an excuse to do so. And now they can do it under a veil of something else. And there is no motivation to cut those CEOs and executive uh, wages because, well, A, there's some self-interest, of course, but also because they don't necessarily feel the need to, I suppose. But the whole article kind of goes into a little bit more macroeconomics level of how this really shows a failure in these companies that CEO pay packets always skyrocket and never seem to come down in so many companies in times of failure, and yet you lay off lots of people. And this has actually probably got a big negative detriment to the economy. I guess the argument is one person making 100 million uh, has less of an impact on society than 100 people making a million. Well, that's, you know what I mean, you know, you could, well, or if you wanted to go further, I just can't do the maths. But, <laughs> you know, that, that more people spending less is probably better for the economy than one person spending a lot and there's less need for benefits and all of these sorts of things. So it's actually a greater positive impact to the economy if the CEOs just took a pay cut than get rid of 12,000 people and this sort of thing. And there's a bigger argument here to say that the CEOs also really lack any actual responsibility or oversight, just having to report every now and then. And often they can kind of show that uh, things have been uh, better than they may appear. Uh, they don't report all the time. So these kind of numbers can be fudged in and out of quarters and things like that. And I think this is something I've definitely been been thinking recently in that uh, why does this not happen more often? Why are Apple and Intel an exception? Why is this not more common? Why do executives not take more responsibility for, for not necessarily their mistakes, because I don't know if there is their mistakes, but take more responsibility than just putting it all down to the bottom? Or at the very least, and this is so prevalent in America, giving people decent notice periods, you know, oh, this project has not been as as lucrative as we expected, we are going to reassign you, we are going to, you're going to lose your job, but it's not just under this smokescreen of, oh, everything's bad. It's just, you know, this project hasn't been going very well. Um, and that's our responsibility. We shouldn't have done that. But, you know, there's no place else for you, but at least we're giving you 
reasonable time. I was also told by an Indian friend of mine here in Germany who lived in the US for a while that for a lot of uh, non-Americans as well, it's actually tied to their visas and you have to literally leave the country the next day. So it's wild just how much effect this can have on people. And, you know, if that CEO had just taken a 50% pay cut, all these people would not be going through this this nightmare, I guess. Anyway, call me crazy maybe, but that's... Um, that's, uh, that article really, really resonated with me and I was sort of wondering um, quite, well, I know why it's this dynamic, but why can't it change, I suppose. A quick one here in my kind of tech history segment that is fairly regular for Mental Floss, Matt Soniak. How did the duck hunt gun work if anyone remembers this and it wasn't the only one there were other of these sort of laser guns you pointed at the tv screen to interact with generally shoot at things um in old school console games and i was always i guess i sort of had this uh, assumption that it worked in a similar way to to how remote worked but it always fascinated me to know how it worked <laughs> exactly and how it was pretty good at its at its job really and um, this article goes into it. And actually, apparently, the technology has existed or did exist since the 1930s, which is pretty incredible. And it comes out initially with Shooting Gallery on the Magnavox Odyssey in the 70s, and then is very popular in the 80s into the 90s. Um, and I, I don't think there were that many, but um, they, were, <laughs> they were popular. And I think... To many, many people of a certain age have a fond memory. So if you'd like a little bit more knowledge on the history, go take a look. Next, so myself and my friend Killian have put out two episodes now of this new In Bots We Trust video, which is on my YouTube channel. Um, we looked at, in one episode, we looked at image generation with generative AI. So Crayon, Dali, Midjourney, etc., etc. And then we looked at text, so chat GPT, but also some of the precursors to that, some of the sort of AI grammar assistance, that sort of thing. And the news has been endless the past few weeks. It's really sucking the air out of the room for every other thing in technology. So here's just a very quick selection of things that caught my eye because there's sort of so many it could be. Uh, something interesting from Umba Bharti from the Buffer blog talking about how she is conflicted as a, as a content writer about these AIs. Um, very wide news about Microsoft and Google's sort of packaging around these various AI tools. Microsoft obviously is using ChatGPT. Uh, Google is using Bard. And there's been a lot of sort of evidence to show that the Google one has not been as successful as they would have hoped and has been a little embarrassing in places. And I've got some more articles on that coming in the next episode uh, how microsoft are rolling in so many of uh, the, these technologies into all of their suite trying to get more people onto bing and edge and etc etc and we'll see whether it works i'm still waiting for the really big azure play to be honest with you and then um more finally i think uh, more finally what terrible grammar sorry finally uh, this uh, this is something I think I had an interview with, with a company that uh, dealt with this topic way back at some point. I'd have to go and dig it out. And they uh, made artificial images um, 
obviously you've seen these probably in architectural things and in games and things like that, but often they're, they're actually increasingly used to train. So you have this odd concept where a machine is creating artificial data to train a machine, and you can see where this feedback loop could come. And this is an article from Leo Kim in Wired, fake pictures of people of color won't fix AI bias. Um, because where are these images getting generated from? Yes, you see the problem. <laughs> so, uh, yes, if a if a tech if a if an industry that already has an issue with bias is responsible for generating images to solve the bias problem, I think you can start to see where this is going to go. And uh, so far, it hasn't been as successful as they hoped. But if you're interested to know uh, how this works and why people think this could be a solution to the problem, then have a read because uh, it's happening and it feels very, very odd to me. And I'm not really going to go into the whole like uh, Skynet analogy, but it does feel a little bit down that path. You know, you have machines creating information for other machines and feeding the cycle and all the problems that may well, that may um, cause. <laughs> so interesting times. Next, the other story that has been uh, following along, uh, this uh, OGL issue with Wizards of the Coast and Dungeons & Dragons, uh, that's actually sort of been resolved somewhat now, but uh, many are wondering whether that uh, Wizards attempt to make everybody happy and they've released certain things under Creative Commons now. They've actually kind of made things better than they were. And I will again recommend Sky Flourish's podcast who discussed this quite a lot, talking about how actually in some respects we shouldn't be complaining so much because many companies didn't even have an OGL type uh, type license. So, you know, the fact that Wizards had anything for such a long period of time was kind of amazing in itself, but it also challenged that maybe other companies wouldn't have really um, challenged anything. And now Petsio, probably the company that had most to lose from this change because their entire system, Pathfinder, has kind of piggybacked off of this license for years, have released their own system-neutral open RPG license uh, and and they're not the only one there's been uh, chaosium and several other companies have all been jumping on this bandwagon to release uh, gaming licenses and systems that they think will be the should be the model moving forward and actually the interesting thing here and this is probably where it crosses over to many of my audience they have actually talked about how they took inspiration from the open source uh, software movement and they specifically mentioned the Linux Foundation. So it's interesting that uh, they're kind of, they're at least cognizant of the fact that there have been other industries that have been here, done that, although they'll be having our own issues in software, but anyway. <laughs> and finally, Vox by Emily Stewart, the death of the customer service hotline. I actually live in a country, Germany, where people still are pretty obsessed with uh, phone lines, much to my chagrin a lot of the time. But uh, there are obviously a lot of these big international companies where it is impossible to get in touch with anybody. And the article outlines some of the major issues with that, where there's a person here who um, was attempting to contact Facebook because their phone number was wrong in a Facebook business listing, but they couldn't phone them and the system wouldn't let them get in touch because 
their phone number wasn't working. And yes, you see the kind of vicious cycle catch 22 here. And just, uh, I guess another one of those examples of how these large scale businesses are doing things to suit them, not the customer. I mean, I don't really, uh, I think I don't really have to point that out. I probably sound naive for even uh, <laughs> kind of saying that people should expect that these days. And the, the strange thing is, is we kind of got, got ourselves here because largely we don't really want to talk to people. We'd rather do it automated. Um, but of course, this means that we whittle away these people who are there. And when we want to just pick up the phone and shout at someone and have a human kind of understand the non-black and white of a situation, they're not there because, well, we didn't want them there. So hmm. <laughs> anyway, whatever you may think about that or anything else I have mentioned in today's episode, head on over to christianchiller.com at Christianch on Twitter, Christian Schiller on Mastodon, and let me know your opinions. Now is my interview with David. I'm going to attempt this surname again now a week or so after the interview, Katuhe, about Babylon JS, a wonderful 3D browser-based JavaScript framework. Today I am joined by David Katui, uh, works at Microsoft, but creator of Babylon JS, which I looked at a few weeks, a month ago. I can't quite remember now. Um, how are you doing? I'm doing super well. Thank okay. you very much for having me. No worries. Let's begin with, um, what do you do at Microsoft? Is it at all relevant to Babylon? Oh, it is, right. Uh, actually, I am a um, partner group engineering manager. I have um, four, um, I have two big teams. Mm -hmm. One is Babylon JS, and then okay. another one is uh, Microsoft Stream. That's the video platform of, of Microsoft. Yeah. So, I, yeah, I split my time between both of them. Okay. Now, let's explain what is Babylon JS. Yes. The JS would obviously allude that it's something to do with JavaScript. Correct. <laughs> but, what, but what is it? Um, what is it? So um, Babylon JS was initially developed. Uh, I developed that personally as a garage project on the side before joining Microsoft. It was initially meant to be a game engine for the web. So by game engine, I mean you have everything to render 3D on the, on the screen, but also audio, um, uh, particles, special effects, animations, physics, collisions, what you need, sprites, what you need to build the game. Um, I joined Microsoft to be evangelist for uh, Internet Explorer 10, 11, and then Edge. Um, and at some point in my career, people from Microsoft pinged me and told me, hey, you know what? We, in uh, SharePoint, in OneDrive, we are using Babylon.js to render a 3D object within our product. And they told me, you know what? We should create a, um, a team that supports Babylon.js. And I was like, wow, you want to pay me for something I'm doing for free? Let me think about that. <laughs> so yeah, we created the team based on that, and um, the project evolved into a, um, at least for Microsoft, a, an engine that we use to accelerate rendering across the web. It's not just 3D anymore; it's also 2D rendering in Teams, for instance. If you look at Teams, we have reactions where you know you can ah, clap or yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> sprites are Babylon JS. Ah. Um, the background removal blur on Teams is also Babylon JS. Uh, if you play um, XCloud, all the rendering of XCloud on the client side is Babylon JS based. <laughs> Uh, PowerPoint Live, it's Babylon JS based. We use that to 
unlock the GPU for Microsoft properties while staying a game engine, open source, Apache 2 license that anyone can use outside. Mm. It's, a, it's a deal I, I made with Microsoft long time ago. We keep it open, we keep it alive, we keep it thriving, and Microsoft can have a team of people dedicated to use it inside their, our own project. Okay. Uh, just out of interest, you said accelerate Microsoft products, but I'm yes. assuming it's cross-platform and it does those things cross-platform. Or... Uh, yeah, Microsoft product in the sense that PowerPoint, Software. for instance, yeah. when they render, they use BabylonJS to render on a cross-platform basis. Yeah. It's not for Windows, right? I dissociate yeah, no, Microsoft no, for sure. for Windows. I think that's yeah. not really Microsoft strategy these days anyway. No, <laughs> not anymore. <laughs> cool. So it works everywhere. Linux. Uh, we have uh, Babylon Native, which yeah. is the... Um, the the browser the browser the browser sorry of um, Babylon JS it's a shell that we use to render Babylon JS within native client like in iOS Android Windows Mac Hololens and Linux okay oh Hololens too interesting that yes. makes sense as well I guess yeah so yeah. let's go back then um, I mean when you go to the project it's like one of these projects that it doesn't seem to be as well known as it should, or it doesn't get the kind of buzz of a lot of JavaScript frameworks. I can't frameworks. agree more. I can't agree more. That's why I'm so happy you ended up. <laughs> but it does so much. <laughs> so how did you begin? Like, When and why did you begin it in the oh, first place? Yeah. So uh, if I have to trace that back, uh, I created my first engine when I was uh, 18 years old in 1996. No, long time ago, I was doing a coding party. Uh, it was a context, a contest, sorry, mostly in Europe, actually, mm -hmm. like uh, in um, uh, between developers, right? Where we were creating um, animations uh, that were rendering live. I don't know. People may not know, like the demo, demo scene. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Of okay. course. So, I used to use an Amiga back in the day. I remember the I, well, I created my first rendering on Amiga, on Commodore Amiga. <laughs> Well, they were very and popular in Europe, of course. <laughs> oh, yeah. I still, I still have very uh, fond memories yeah. of my Amiga. Uh, I, I, I had the um, uh, 500 plus. I loved it. Yeah. And then I moved to PC. I created an engine on PC uh, using Whatcom C on, under DOS, right? And then that engine evolved into something that I named Nova. And I, 19, in 1999, I founded my first company, uh, which was about this... Uh, 3D engine that we use first on DOS and then on Windows using DirectX. Um, it was used mostly for architectural representation. I'm from France, Southwest. Um, there is Airbus right there. Right. And Airbus was using our um, rendering capabilities for simulations and stuff. So fast forward until 2011, I uh, sold my company and I moved to Microsoft and uh, I sold my engine with my company. So Nova was uh, no more my baby. I gave that with someone else, to someone okay. else. And then uh, I joined Microsoft and I felt immediately that, oh my gosh, something is missing in my life. So I decided to create a silver light engine named Babylon. <laughs> so the name Babylon <laughs> comes from my passion for Babylon 5, the ah, TV show. Also done on Amigas. So here goes. All oh, right, exactly. Lightweight <laughs> forever. Uh, so yeah, um, I created a silver light 5 engine. That was uh, the beginning of that. It was a embryo of an engine, but it was able to render scenes, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, there was a, uh, a be the beginning of a collision system. So like, think about some kind of a quake engine somehow. Um, 
And then Microsoft shipped i10, and with i10, we shipped WebGL. And with WebGL, I saw, oh my gosh, now we can talk about really being cross-platform. Mm. Because thanks to Safari, um, Chrome, Opera, AI, and Firefox, all of them were supporting WebGL, a common 3D layer across the board, right? And I was like, okay, man, that's the moment. So I ported my Babylon Silverlight, which was written with C Sharp, to JavaScript, and then a year later, probably to uh, TypeScript. Uh, and voila, that was the very beginning of the engine. It took roots into the demo scene, if you think about it. Yeah. And we'll come to some of that in a second. I just wondered, uh, like, maybe I'm being slightly ignorant here, but I saw a, a talk uh, late, I can't actually remember if it was late last year or early this year, it doesn't really matter, um, from someone showing how to build ray tracing in native JavaScript, I think native. And so JavaScript adds more and more of this sort of functionality. Um, is there becoming a point where Babylon and native JavaScript are kind of merging and maybe Babylon can take less, can add less, or is that just me not realizing and they were maybe using some external libraries there? I guess they were using Wasm, right? I'm um, not sure, but um, if but, that's but what do you mean by native JavaScript? Then in just no case? frameworks, I think is all I mean. <laughs> oh, no WebGL, nothing, right? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, uh, um, well, probably with WebGL because that's built into the browsers, isn't it? I think now, but yeah, yeah, and yeah. that's what we use in Babylon JS. We okay. only use WebGL. There so, is nothing else. So, what are you, are you adding? Kind of convenience methods, I suppose, and things like that. If you think about WebGL, it's like DirectX or Metal or Vulkan. Yeah. It's very low level APIs, right? So there is yeah. no concept yeah. of even yeah. a triangle, right? Yeah. It's, oh no! And in this talk. What he did took a lot of code, so yes. <laughs> yes, right. And so Babylon.js would be like Unreal or Unity yeah. or uh, Godot. We build a scene framework on top of the uh, native JavaScript. Mm. And we provide you with a concepts like a camera, a light, a mesh, yep. a material, a shader and everything. And we take care of all the plumbing. So you can yep. say, you can be the director and say, okay, yep. I want a... Uh, uh, an ocean and then here I want a boat and then there I want an iceberg and that's it right you you are high level yeah and that's actually what it reminded me of I have been learning uh, Unity slowly and a lot of the paradigms were, were similar oh yeah um, of course yeah, yeah and I, it may be that it's familiar to a lot of 3D worlds they're just the main the main one I know so <laughs> yeah it's common ground like most of the time we all have the same approach because also the tools, right? If you think about tooling like Autodesk Maya or yep. Autodesk Studio or Blender 3D, all of them manipulate the same concept. And so the rendering engine somehow like take roots from there as well. And so we have the same concepts in yep. the real time. Coming to that tooling side, one of the things that fascinated me was, you know, unlike a lot of JavaScript frameworks, which will kind of just do the, I don't know, let's say the, the code size, as, as strange as that may seem, and then just leave it there. You've got a lot of other tooling here. Um, <laughs> the curve editor, performance, uh, a GUI editor actually in, in beta as well. Yeah. And I know a lot of these sort of performance tools are kind of important to, to 3D, but not common to the JavaScript world. So was that something that you wanted to create from the outset or were they things that people started asking and you realized were needed or at scale or what was the motivation behind that? I had three fundamental 
uh, goals when I created Babylon.js. The first one was backward compatibility. One of the pain points. So Babylon.js um, as a, uh, a competitor, I don't want to use competitor. It's not a war, but we, there, are, there is another big 3D engine on the web, which is 3JS. Yeah. And one of the things I... Uh, was looking at when I created Babylon.js was to fix the problem of the backward compatibility. 3JS has no backward compatibility um, philosophy, so sometimes it works, sometimes it does not, right? And because I wanted Babylon.js to be used like a, um, a professional engine, I wanted to make sure that when someone takes Babylon.js, they don't have to rewrite everything at every single version. Mm -hmm. So that was backward compatibility. Second one was obviously performance. I wanted to make sure that we can squeeze the most out of the CPU and the GPU, of course, for a 3D engine. And the third one was, I had that motto, one feature is one line. I, I really wanted to have a engine where you turn the shadows, it's one line of code. You want to have collisions, it's one line of code. At the end of the day, it does not work as simple as that, but that was the foundational um, philosophy. And for tooling, that's the same motto, right? When you think, you mention um, GUI editor, I could also, for instance, add uh, the node material editor. The mm -hmm. node material editor uh, lets you um, create shaders without having to learn the shader language of GPUs, right? And the point here is the same, right? I want you to be able to be the director in the director chair, say what you want, and then the system helps you, right? So writing a GUI, GUI interface could be tiresome to mm. say the least, right? You have to declare every single control, move them accordingly, set all the thousand properties you want, right? Or you can have a UI editor where you, it's with wig, right? You move stuff around. And at the end of the day, that's the same motto. One line is one feature. Mm -hmm. And for some feature, I was not able to get one line is one feature. So we decided, okay, you know what? Let's step back and create a tool that will do that for you. Yeah. And but the but the performance monitoring and things like that were those things you added from the outset or the the profiling no. tools? You have to right. It's impossible to yeah. develop an engine without the tooling. Like how can you measure? Furthermore, on the web, right? Because yeah, I don't yeah, know where sure. Babylon.js will run. Will it run on a, a you know, um, low-end device Android uh, that has barely a, like a CPU? I don't know. So we had to have tools almost since the beginning. Mm -hmm. We have tools in the code. Like the scene optimizer is one API I think of, which is here to help you detect where are the bottlenecks. And we recently had uh, visual tools like um, in the inspector where you have the performance monitor. The, the goal is for us to be able to have a, um, our partners. We partner with Nike, Adobe, Ferrari, all of them, right? And if they call us and say, hey, um, this Scene does not work well. Why? We have to be very efficient yeah. and say, okay, it does not work well because, and then that's the, why the performance monitor. Okay. And um, in addition to Microsoft, who, who are some of the other big users of Babylon that you can mention? Oh, um, um, Adobe, Nike. Okay. So the ones uh, you just said, okay. <laughs> Jeep, uh, Wayfair in the US. Yeah. We have uh, IKEA. IKEA, they build their catalog and part of the, um, the, the tool chain, there is Babylon.js. Is, is Adobe for the like web Photoshop and things like that? Or is it for... So what you can see, you can use Adobe. What's the name of this tool again? Um, oh, the, like the 3D. Adobe Dimension. If yeah, you use okay. Adobe Dimension, huh. it's Babylon uh, baked on the web. Yes. Oh, okay, nice. And in terms of the community, is it mostly... Microsoft people, or is there a... Oh, no, 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 Microsoft okay. is very... Uh, 
limited in the community. And since the beginning, I wanted Microsoft pay my salary, right? So it's, yeah. uh, it's important for me to, to say that loud, right? So of course, when we are taking a decision and making some, um, roadmaps, of course, we take in account Microsoft goals, but it's what 50% of the, the decision making. The community through our forum, forum.babylongs.com is just entirely not Microsoft, like literally it's everything else, right? So we have there people from all over the world, people who are creating metaverse, investing in blockchain, people who wants to just have a game. We have uh, several schools across the world, across the world who wants to, um, just teach Babylon JS for their students to create games. So the community is vast and I, I, I'm proud of that. And when I ask people, why are you using Babylon JS? It's not about the perf. It's not even about the tools. Mm -hmm. It's about yeah. most of the time, if they are professional, the backward compatibility, because they cannot invest every week to change everything and the support we provide through the community and the forum. Yeah. Okay. And one of the other great things, you actually have quite a cool uh, sort of developer experience that the documentation is pretty good. You have lots Thanks. of in interactive examples and yes. interactive in your own sort of playground. Uh, yes. The code directly affects widgets on the right and then vice yes, versa. Yes, yes. So let's, let's come back to the, the, the question um, I mentioned earlier. It, do you think that uh, it's it's not a JavaScript framework that's talked about a lot just because it's kind of a niche use case or I don't know. <laughs> Man, if you can find that answer, I, I would love to because we have very much um, on the side. I am an artist, so I'm painting yeah. and I, I like my paintings. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I don't I should not say that this way, but I figure out, let's say that differently, put that differently. I feel like when people see my heart, I feel like they like it. So I feel the same with Babylon JS. When they see the engine, people love it and they want to use it. And they all ask me, but where were you all that time? And I say, frack, I was there. That's the problem of the current world where we are living in. There are so many stuff around. It's impossible to, um, I don't know how to break through, right? Yeah. So most of the time, if you look at the trend, um, 3JS is like 90% of the market. And 3GS is an excellent 3D engine, no problem at all, right? My problem is that people does not even know that there is an alternative with Babylon GS, right? And so maybe they will prefer 3GS and I'm super happy. Mr. Dub is uh, someone I, I, um, I appreciate a lot, no problem. But I just want the people to see the other aspect as well. Did you even try Babylon GS? What? No, I don't know that engine, right? That's my problem. If you can fix that, buddy, I'm ready to pay. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> there's a challenge to everybody. Um, so, yeah, right. so I'm guessing that the the GUI editor has probably been one of the the main um, function uh, main features you've been working on recently. What exactly is that GUI editor for? GUI is for for what? So it's it's tricky, right? Because you can tell me, hey, on the web, I have already HTML and yeah. CSS. Why, why do I want a GUI? And that's a very good question. Initially. The first moment uh, I personally created the GUI engine, and when I created it, it was for uh, VR and XR. When you run VR and XR as of today on the browser, DOM is not renderable anymore. You go full screen, mm -hmm. right, within the headset, and so there is no uh, HTML. So 
user were like, okay, but I still need to have a UI, right? That I can click with my finger mm -hmm. or with my controllers. So GUI was initially written to s uh, solve that issue. But there is a mode in GUI that I um, that is used more and more. It's the projection of the UI. Think about your UI, but projected on an object in the scene. Like you have a computer, you have a door, you have a, um, uh, a mechanism on the door, right? GUI, um, GUI can be used to render the texture and still remain interactive. So yeah. you, you see what I mean? Like you have a panel with nine buttons, one, two, three, four, nine, and you can have every button as 3D object, but you can also have a GUI element with buttons, like literal buttons, like in 2D, and you can click them and have action associated to that. So today, GUI in the games are mostly used for that projected yeah. Yeah. user interface and VR and ER. And does the editor actually... <sighs> How far does it take you down the path? Is it just creating the kind of the, the objects that you then hook up with functionality or can you actually attach bits of functionality in the editor as you go? It's only UI. No, no, okay. there is no functionality writing. You, yep. you build the UI element and then you hook them within yep. your code. Yep. And so what's next? What's on the, the next six months? Uh, we have a big months? one coming soon. Okay. Unfortunately, uh, <laughs> I, uh, yeah. I can't really, I would love to, but we have the v, v, V6, Babylon 6, yeah. will be shipped probably in April, okay. depending on how it's going, maybe May, right? So very soon, and we're going to announce something massive. I, I mean it, like literally, V6 will come with a massive improvement in one of the aspects of Babylon GS that was... Uh, so, so, so far. <laughs> Unfortunately, my team will kill me if I, uh, if I, so, if I sell the secret right now. But stay tuned. And I'm happy to come back to your uh, oh, podcast. With, with some, the just with some of the other recent news from Microsoft, you've got me intrigued now. I don't know. <laughs> uh, it's not AI related. No, no, it's not AI. It's, it's still in the domain of uh, game engine and, and stuff. Fair enough. But that yeah. said, I will, uh, we are also working on a, um, that's not a secret, we are trying to integrate ChatGPT in the forum <laughs> and in the playground. <laughs> and in the playground, we have a demo that uh, works right now. Unfortunately, ChatGPT is not always correct. So yeah, look at, um, there's this project called Astro uh, that has just done that, actually. Um, they've made a documentation chatbot with ChatGPT, and this is strange this is something i actually had an idea for years ago but the technology just didn't support it and now it actually supports it <laughs> yeah but we we tried that as well unfortunately if uh, the bot is not 100 percent accurate yeah, yeah it's not something we can tell the user to use right because they all the people will fall into 20 percent when it's wrong <laughs> and things are made up does not work so we try to have uh, on the playground we can ask the bot hey how do you create a sphere and make it red? And most of the time that works. And because we can compile the code immediately, at least we know if it's correct or not. So we are working on stuff like that. And another interesting thing I found with, with Babylon, um, obviously when you're using something like Unity, you can often go and buy and acquire a sort of royalty-free library images and things like that. But you actually include a few hundred all inside the 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 code as it were um i sort of interested how this is the uh, asset librarian how do you actually ship all those without increasing the file size so much where are they coming from they are loaded dynamically from okay. our cdn okay okay yeah they are and, not part in our framework and did were those contributed by the community and did can people yeah. sort of yeah. add, add them and things like that or 
We, it's a mix. Microsoft also offered some of them. Um, mm -hmm. A few years ago, I was part of that team. We created a, a website named Remix 3D. I don't know if you ever remember that. Remix 3D was kind of a Sketchfab competitor. Mm, mm. So a place where you can have, it's an asset store for 3D objects. Okay, yeah. Did not work. People were not really interested. Microsoft was new to the market. We, we closed it. But the assets remained. And I was able to get some of them out of the um, copyright madness. And mm. so, yeah, we, we, we kept them. Okay. And I guess, is it, does, does Babylon offer any sort of, um, uh, I don't know, export or integration? I'm not really sure what the best word is if people did want to take what they've um, created into oh, yeah, other platforms. So, yes, we do. So, Babylon JS initially came with its own file format, which was uh, the Babylon format, dot mm -hmm. Babylon format. So. And I wrote... Uh, exporters for 3ds Max and Maya, okay. and the community write, wrote an exporter for Blender. Okay. Okay. But fast forward to today's, we are part of the Kronos Group, um, the GLTF committee, and GLTF committee, uh, GLTF, is the uh, JPEG of the web, if you prefer. Yeah. That's yeah. the yeah. common file yeah. format that the industry agreed upon to be the transport file format for uh, 3D. So we support GLTF, and now you can go to Blender, Maya, Cinema 4D, you name it, they will be able to export GLTF. And I can claim with you here that Babylon.js has the best support of this file format. We yeah. take that extremely seriously. Actually, to be honest with you, I first encountered the file format in Babylon, and then I went looking about what it was, and then I kept finding it in other applications. So. Yeah. <laughs> we, we were at the inception of the file format. Yeah. Microsoft yeah. was one of the main actors pushing with NVIDIA to get a common ground, right? It was, it was, it was a, the, the, the wide west, wide west before. It was like <laughs> everything was proprietary. It was terrible. It still is a little bit. That's one bit. That still, bit. yes, I agree. Me, yeah. But if you stick with DLCF, it should work. Cool. Okay. So if people are interested in um, finding more, it's relatively easy to start. Yep. Uh, that's babylonjs.com. And you've got this space pirate demo, which does a, a reasonable amount. Uh, you have a, it took me a long time to create something equivalent in Unity. <laughs> so, I appreciate that. So there's quite a lot there. And then I found I could keep sort of going after that. Um, you've also got a, a book. Is that book? Um, yeah, someone from the community wrote a book, exactly. That's a, that's a paid-for book or...? A, yeah, you, yeah, you have to buy it on... on yeah. uh, it's not us. It's a, a very active member of the community yeah. and so that person spend his personal time on it. So, yeah. yeah. Are there any other kind of um, areas of Babylon or features that you'd say people should really check out if they're interested in looking into more? Honestly, it's the doc, doc.babylonjs.com. We, we okay. pour our love and energy yep. into making that as accessible as possible. It's a documentation. I know already it's not perfect, far from that, but we keep improving it. Um, and number two is probably the forum. Forum.babylonjs.com is a place where every day we have at least one engineer from my team, like mm -hmm. one of the core developers who goal, work, duty is to support and help people. So nice. we yeah. want to have every question answered in less than 48 hours. And I mean it. It's not a joke. So if you go there and you can ping me on Twitter if I'm wrong, right? I will <laughs> happily fix that. But if you go there, I can tell you, you get an answer within 48 hours. Okay. 
I think that sounds like a, a nice positive place to stop. So thank you very much for your time. It was my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. And that was my interview covering Babylon JS. I hope you enjoyed that. Now, a few things from me. There's been a bit, I'm kind of rethinking a little bit of some things I'm doing again, um, but I do have uh, some things out already. Um, on Medium, I have a fair bit. I have still been doing the Storytelling Collective Flash February. So I've got a lot of uh, flash fiction on my Medium profile if you want to take a look. Uh, I've also published uh, migrating a website from Jekyll to dot, dot, dot. What have, been my, my, what have I been migrating my website to and why I took the decisions I have? And I'll be having a part two very soon uh, going through how I, how I migrated my site and um, the experience of that. Uh, I've got that in progress right now. And on YouTube, the first two episodes, as already mentioned, of In Bots We Trust is probably the best thing to go and take a look at right now. I am working on some other new videos right now. Uh, what I'm going to do for my next edited versions. I've had a couple of uh, live streams over the past week or so. Uh, Plumi, um, VCV Rack, Max 8 and IK Multimedia plugins. And Friday, so a couple of day or two after this podcast is released, I'll be looking at Magenta, AI music generation. Sort of a little bit of research for a future episode of Ian Bots We Trust. But that is where I recommend you take a look right now. Medium and my YouTube channel. So as always, thank you very much for joining me, everybody, and take care, and I'll talk to you again soon. I hope you enjoyed the show. Find out more about me at chrischinchilla.com, where you can find show notes, sign up for my newsletter, and find all of my writing, games, work, and video links. There's also details on how to get in touch with me. And if you want to get even closer to what I do, join my Discord server for behind-the-scenes discussions and helping me produce my shows and work.